Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Shelby Steele, the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. And it was recorded on February 3rd, 2015. Thank you for those, uh, those kind words. I did drive myself here today. Well, I was driven part of the way, and I realized a person was, was handling the automobile because he asked for a tip uh, toward the end of the journey. So we're, we're not quite there yet, but I guess we're on our way to to driverless cars. Well, boy, to change the subject uh, rather radically, I suppose, I wanted to just talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the ideas in my new book, Shame, uh, and to sort of compliment this audience. It was here a few years ago, I think, I haven't calculated exactly, that somebody made a remark after uh, after my talk, uh, that evolved into the new book. And so I, I thank you for, uh, for, the, for the, uh, the frankness and so forth that, that spurred me uh, to take a certain angle and, and uh, see a book there and that finally is, uh, uh, has come to fruition. Well, I want to... Uh, Race is in the news again. Uh, it seems it's been in the news all my life. Uh, deeply, profoundly controversial. People have all sorts of uh, feelings and reactions uh, to it. And again, this, this past year we've had, uh, from the Trayvon Martin shooting, uh, Mike Brown, Ferguson uh, riots and looting and uh, the usual sort of suspects who come out in occasions like that, Reverend Sharpton and so forth, to, um, to sort of check the weather, I guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and so it's, it is there. And in, in fact, it, is, um, it functions almost like Greek mythology. There is a, there's a dramatic resonance to it. Um, when we, uh, when it, it uh, comes up, the question is, well, what does this really mean? Uh, was this kid really shot by uh, uh, a white American animus that lingers over from our, our history and where we still have uh, such contempt uh, and, uh, and racist impulses that we... Uh, that we shoot young men like this. Is this, is this the case? If, if not, what, 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 does, uh, what does it mean? And so in a sense, we're kind of, race sort of locks America into a kind of morality play where we're always looking, we're looking really more for the meaning of it uh, today than anything else, than, uh, than anything material that, that, that might be in it. Um, 
we sense that it's telling us something about ourselves as a society. Uh, and uh, what, what is that? What does it mean? I'd like to introduce, and I do in the book in a little more detail than I will here, uh, the concept of poetic, what I call poetic truth. Um, and poetic truth functions pretty much like poetic license does in, in, in literature. Um, in literature, you know that at certain points, you are sort of licensed to break the grammatical rule in order to make your point more powerful. Uh, you, can, you can fiddle with things, you're give, because we, we sort of know you're taking a license, and somehow it's more effective and uh, gives you results in, in, uh, in the more effective writing if you, are, if you have the license to do that. Well, I think that in, in, uh, in race relations, we are, we are often uh, mired in uh, poetic truth, truth that, uh, that comes to us uh, through a certain license rather than through some sort of hard, factual um, evidence. Let's look for, for just a moment. Um, for example, since, since it, is, it is always the kind of racial backstory in America, the story between blacks and whites and what it's meant and, and uh, so forth. What's the reality? What is the, what is the poetic truth there and at play? Well, the reality um, has not been very good, as we, we, we all know. Um, one of my favorite short stories is by uh, writer Ralph Ellison. Some of you may know Ralph Ellison, the author of uh, Invisible Man, I think probably the greatest black American writer we've yet produced. Um, and uh, in, he writes in a short story uh, called The King of the Bingo Game. Um, and it happens during the war. World War II and, uh, or thereabouts. And a young man is, is out of the military, is uh, without employment, without work, without a future, without anybody around him and uh, for support. Um, and he is hungry. It is a cold afternoon. And he has no money or very little uh, money, a few nickels. Uh, in his pocket, uh, and so he, just to stay warm, he stumbles into a theater in some place very much like Harlem in New York City, uh, where they have a bingo game every afternoon, and you can, you can test your luck, and if you're really lucky, uh, you can win some money and, and maybe then get a good meal and get a place to sleep and so forth. So he goes uh, to the bingo game uh, with the few pence he has left um, and he hopes that, uh, that his number will come up but he, he doesn't really believe that's going to happen and so 
the story gets very dark and, uh, and he's sort of left to his own resources. Then all of a sudden he plays a number and he wins. Uh, and he can't really believe it. He's, he's actually won a little bit of money. And uh, he can now foresee a warm bed, a, a good meal, and so forth. Uh, he then, uh, as, as uh, neophytes commonly do, uh, he then doubles down. And now he's going he's gonna to play, put whatever he's got uh, on, uh, on a number. And I'll be darned if that number does not come up. And he wins again. And now he is, he is a kind, in a kind of glow of happiness. He, uh, he uh, feels in charge of his own fate. Feels that he's, he's gotten past something. Uh, and of course there is this the sort of game show host, the bingo the bingo, the host of the bingo game, who, uh, who then set, escorts him backstage to collect his money. And of course, the moment he gets backstage to collect his money, he's beaten over the head. And the few nickels he had to begin with are snatched away from him. Uh, and he's kicked out the back door, back into the cold, still hungry and desperate. Um, End of story. Um, well, in a sense, what he has what he has learned um, learned many many things, um, but that the rules of a game like bingo are not literal; they are ironic. That is to say, that they don't say what they mean. They very often say the opposite of what they mean. It's not that you're going to play your number and you're going to have an honest chance to win. It's that you're going to have no chance to win. And you're, you're going to, uh, uh, we, we ex we're going to ask that you have a kind of blind faith and put your money down uh, even though we know uh, that you're not going to win at all. And so the, the rules of the game cease to become rules in the this, in this strict sense, and they just become a kind of pretext for exploitation, uh, for denigration. Uh, I want you to believe in these rules. I want you to believe, dare we take the leap, in the principles of freedom. But in reality, uh, we, we have no such intention. You, you, won't be, you won't be free because those, those rules um, are ironic. They are designed really to, again, exploit you, denigrate you rather than to uh, give you a fair shot at uh, at freedom. Um, and so he is left with, with nothing but his hunger and his sort of this feeling stupid, feeling that his life 
uh, has been reduced to a kind of joke um, and that he is made to live in with absurdity in a world that is absurd and that does not care about him uh, and that only seeks to use and exploit him. Well, this man is, of course, Ellison's metaphor for the black American experience. His point, Ellison's point, is that in a sense, this is what, is, this is what has happened. It's, you know, it's, it's um, not that, that people are sort of consciously evil. It is that we go along with, uh, with a system uh, that uh, we know full well from the very beginning is a kind of a stacked deck and that uh, when you believe in it, uh, you are a fool. So there is this, this irony and absurdity that surrounds one's experience as a, as a black American. And this goes on generation after generation where there is the, the call for faith, the call for a belief in high principle, the call for a belief in freedom, for a belief in justice, for, for a belief in fair play. And we discover, of course, that all these things are, in a sense, cruel jokes. And so this sense of cruelty, this sense of denigration, of self-denigration, then becomes a part of the personality of that group and of the people in that group, uh, and then becomes a part of their culture, uh, their way of life, they are asked to function within a society that uh, does not, uh, that only uses them, that does not believe in them, uh, and yet that wants somehow, uh, wants them to, to, to sign on to all that is wonderful and all that is great in that, in that society. Um, well, that is, in a sense, what a, what a poetic truth is. Uh, in this case, the poetic truth uh, for this young man, the poetic truth is that he's, he's going to have a fair shot. He's going to put his money down, and he's going to, whatever number comes up, comes up, and he then gets to, to take it. So he is, he is uh, asked to believe. The reality, of course, is not the poetic truth, it is that um, he's not going to be allowed to win um, under any circumstance. Well, that is, the, that is the actual history, down on the ground, day-to-day -day life um, that many black Americans uh, lived. I remember as a, uh, as a young boy, uh, not long after the war. Uh, and uh, I remember there was a gentleman in our neighborhood who had, black, who had, uh, because everything was segregated, who'd fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and he wanted to always bore us with stories of him fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, later on in life, I met, met some of the Tuskegee Airmen who, uh, who, who fought 
so valiantly in, in, uh, in World War II and came home and their own, uh, their own brothers in the military refused to shake their hand, would not touch them. Uh, I myself went to um, a segregated school uh, small school district, only two schools in it. One was white, one was black. And of course, uh, we would, in the snowy days, we'd watch the white kids riding on the bus to go to school while we sort of trudged through the snow. Uh, when they used up their textbooks and they were bedraggled and unreadable, we got them. Uh, when their teachers were about to have a nervous breakdown and fall to pieces, they were sent to the black school uh, where they were often violent and abusive uh, to their, their students. And I can remember sort of saying, well, this is the way things are. Uh, this is just the way things are the way things are, that they're sitting in the school bus there because I don't know. Well, how long does one live with that sense of absurdity? That's, well, what did I do? Did I have to walk in the snow and they ride in the bus and so forth? And um, you, you, you get this again, this, you're, the, you're in the, the guy in the bingo game. Uh, where you, you can't, you're not going to, you're going to be asked to play. You're going to be asked to work hard and so forth, but you're not going to uh, in any way ever be rewarded for it. Your, your, your faith is going to indeed be blind. I think I'll skip a certain part here that gets a little bit too much in detail. But the point I wanted to make is then one of the most difficult things in the black American experience has been the challenge to have faith, to believe in uh, one's self, to believe in the world, that it is a reasonable place. It is not predictable, it's not, uh, certainly not perfect uh, by any lights, but that it's basically overall, if you have faith and in, in follow certain principles, um, you, can do, you can do better than if you don't. And of course, then what happens when time after time, generation after generation, child after child looking at their forebears um, really as suckers, as, as, as people who've been who allowed themselves to be taken in and uh, exploited, uh, then people in that kind of a circumstance tend to lower their ambitions, lower their principles, to develop the lower sides of life um, where their genius as human beings is often uh, uh, extremely productive and creative and imaginative. Think, for example, of the blues, the music. Uh, 
out of which much American music comes. Um, the blues and the story of uh, the sort of, uh, uh, well, you know, the classic blues story is the man comes home from work and he opens his apartment door and he calls out his wife's name and he only hears an echo. Uh, there's, she's gone, all the furniture's gone, uh, and he's alone in the world, uh, and this wonderful illusion uh, that he had of love and human connection uh, has, been, uh, has been wiped out. And so in a sense there is you, when you tell that kind of a story, there is a, there's a tension there. Ellison talks about this between tragedy and comedy. Is this funny uh, or is this tragic? Well, from one angle, it's, it's tragic. From another angle, there's a lot of humor in it. In any case, there's an enormous amount of power in it. Um, that is the source of a lot of the genius in, in black American arts and music and, uh, and so forth. What better people to understand these ironies, uh, to see life in an ironic way, than people who have for generations been uh, subjected to that kind of, that kind of absurdity. Um, Then the 60s come, and I, can, I remember this uh, very vividly. I, had a, I lived through that era, sort of my era. Graduated from college in 1968, which makes me about 32, right? Um, and it was in the 60s that the civil rights movement finally came to a head. And the civil rights movement basically said, if you remember, Martin Luther King is a good, good I suppose, uh, example as many, many others. Um, King was, was a genius in that, that he said, um, well, you know, it's not the principles that are wrong in America. It's not the the idea of freedom and, and um, justice and hard work and self-initiative and all that sort of thing that are wrong. What's wrong is the fact that they're all ironic. They're, for black people, they're all filled with irony. No one really means them. People mean the exact opposite of them. And so what we want is we don't want people to throw out all of those principles and all those ideals. What we want them to do is to give up the irony, is to be honest and, and uh, to, to be, be straightforward uh, with us and um, to try to find the better parts of themselves that are capable of belief. And then maybe that would, that would, put a, that would free us up. That would, in a sense, be our freedom because then we're free now from the ironies of another, of another people. Um, and his movement was absolutely 
revolutionary. Uh, it complete. I, I don't know of a of a of a rev, of a movement within America that has been more transformative than the civil rights movement was, because again, it was a movement against irony, not against principle, but against duplicity and irony and, uh, and so forth. Um, well, this, I, this spread wasn't just civil rights, wasn't just minor, minorities. Um, pretty soon women were involved and a women's movement uh, began to blossom in America. And the women's movement basically argued the same thing. We're not against the principles, but we're against the, the, the ironic treatment of those principles, where you tell us something, but you don't really mean it. You ask us to conform on the one hand, and yet um, uh, we are, we're sort of, when our turn comes, uh, were sort of cheated and uh, left out. Uh, well, other minority groups experienced the same the same sort of uh, the same sort of treatment. Um, there was student rebellions in the '60s that were the same thing. We're against the iron. We're against irony. We're not against the principles, but we're against irony. Um, and there was an environment, the beginnings of an environmental movement in the 60s. There was Vietnam in the 60s. There was a sexual revolution in the 60s. And all of these, again, had this kind of, um, the, this sort of, uh, this, this betrayal. Well, by, as, this, as the 60s really sort of moved into their later years and we came into the 70s, they congealed together. All of these different movements sort of congealed uh, together. Uh, and there, there, there came to be this idea that is still very much with us today that any society that could be this, could have values this high on the one hand, uh, and yet be so deceptive and manipulative of people on the other hand, had something about it that was characterologically grounded in the character, evil. That there was something that there was something at the very soul of the American society that was, in that sense, in this, in that sense, evil, because it tolerated this, and it tolerated this from uh, before its founding, really. Um, well, characterological evil, it seems to me became then a poetic truth. Uh, it is a truth that you can, you can uh, and what, why do you have these poetic truths? Well, you have them for the same reason that the, game, the bingo host had it. 
You, you, you set people up, you, take, you, you set them up for the, um, to take power from them in some way, to take whatever it is, meager uh, fruits of their labor they may, they may still possess. You, you set them up. Well, characterological evil was a, a way in which um, Americans and I, political liberalism, I will use the term bluntly, political liberalism empowered itself against the American mainstream and gave birth to really a new kind of liberalism um, in American history and American culture. Again, um, one that we, that we still live with today. <clears throat> and so today I can, I can say to you, I can be the carnival barker. I can say, well, this is a racist society. Well, the idea that America is a racist society is a poetic truth. It is a bending of uh, taking license with reality, taking license with truth. Um, that is a, a kind of, allows me to morally manipulate the society in which I live and brings to me enormous political power and, and cultural power that I would not have if I played it straight. So why should I play it straight when out here is this, this truth, this characterological idea of my evil, uh, of, of, of your evil that I can then use, use against you? Uh, for, my, for my own ends. And so, in a sense, it was this idea of America's evil that gave birth to a new kind of liberalism, and you can see it in every walk of American life. What is political correctness? Politically, political correctness is the idea that you, you say things in a certain way because you don't want to be, you want to be dissociated from irony. You want to say, you, we're not, we don't practice it here. Uh, we, we don't, we don't uh, to use epithets and negative words about people and groups and so forth uh, is, is a way in which you you sort of mire yourself, um, and we don't do that here. We are we play it, we play it straight. We speak correctly. Um, well, there were countless government programs, Great Society, Johnson's Great Society, uh, in the '60s, school busing for integration. Here we're saying when we use the word integrate now. We really mean it, literally. Uh, and so to prove that we're, that we're integrated, that we're not characterologically evil, that we're not duplicitous, we're gonna actually have school busing to integrate the public schools. Even though it may destroy public education, we're gonna do it anyway because we're trying to get out from under that reputation 
of morally manipulating our own citizens uh, uh, through, through poetic truths of one kind or another. Uh, welfare. Well, when we say welfare in the 19, early 1970s, we don't mean that we're just going to sort of give you a, a, a cheese sandwich and a wink. We're actually going to give you a, a, a sustainable income in which you have to do, for which you have to do absolutely nothing. Not raise your own children. Not stay married, not become educated, not do anything, and you will get, still get this in. Because we, as a society, are intent on proving that when we use the word welfare, we really mean we'll give away welfare. We don't mean that we're, it's just a game we're playing, that we, we're doing it with a nod and a wink. We're doing it literally, we're doing it for real, even though it may be ruining as it did the black American family. So the 72, 3% of all black children today are born out of wedlock, without fathers. Uh, affirmative action, the same, the same sort of thing. Well, affirmative action means, again, we're going to take all the irony out of uh, our, our desire to see um, more, more groups, more various groups um, in the public realm. Uh, and so we're, we're, uh, we're going to put into place policies that require a certain percentage or a certain number of minorities to be represented, whether those minorities, again, are qualified or not and neglecting the fact that, that, uh, that quota systems like that uh, take away the motivation of minorities to, com to compete uh, openly and freely, to develop to, to a competitive level with, with the rest of society. So we're, but we're, 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 we can live with that um, because again, it proves that we are not a, a characterologically evil society. We're really a good and innocent society, and we'll go to no ends to prove that. Well, it, the list goes on and on. Um, diversity is now the, the latest euphemism for affirmative action, um, but again, the same thing so that you see any black Oh, achieves any sort of stature in life, you, 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 they become suspect. Did they, how'd they get there? Are they really, are they, you know, are they for real? Uh, and of course, this, this now goes and takes, takes on the level of the presidency of the United States. Um, is he there because he's the, he's the best man or he competed or he, well, no one even knew him. No one even knew who he was or cared to know who he was. Um, there wasn't there much to know. Uh, but uh, we, America elected him two times. Uh, two times. A um, uh, man with, who offered, again, very little vision, very, very little... Uh, Anything. Well, again, proving that we're not 
a characterologically evil society. We're, we're a good, well-meaning, and innocent society. I think I'm pressing my time here, so I'll say a few more words, and then we'll open it up. Um, well, you can see this sort of paradigm play out in many areas of life. Look at the difference between Al Sharpton and Martin Luther King. You know, you, you see it all there. Um, on the one hand, you have a genuinely great man who, who gave his life, ultimately, in an almost Christ-like way, because of his commitment to principles, to freedom, to justice. Just freedom, that's all he wanted. Uh, that's all he fought for. His favorite picket sign said, I'm a man. Uh, that's all. Uh, there was no request for affirmative action. There was nothing. Later, there seemed there's a debate now whether there was or wasn't. But there's never was never a clear statement on his part for, uh, on on those those issues. His he he and he was admonished blacks to do better constantly. He was it was he made a black conservative today sound like a limp liberal. I mean, he was really intense toward. Uh, in, in that direction. Well, compare that to Reverend Al, um, whom I know a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what a, what a fast, what a bingo uh, host he is. Um, you know, he's, he's uh, got his money and he's on to the next town before you can bat an eye. Uh, and he survives uh, all sorts of things that, that uh, we, 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 wonder, we, we wonder why. Uh, well, Al Sharpton has found the power in charging America with characterological evil. He's found the power in this poetic truth that America is an evil society. And he keeps working it down to the last dime. There's nothing, there's nothing left. Patience is, is, uh, is playing out. Yet he's still working it. He has his own television show. He has, you know, proudly millions of dollars of tax debt that he is now liable, is now liable for. Well, he's a player. He's a familiar American type. He's not some sort of new, unheard of thing. They've been around uh, for a long time. And, and when whites sort of began to wobble and doubt themselves for their own irony, he just simply took advantage of that and uh, came right in the front door. And, um, uh, and, and, and so we all sort of know the story. Look, he, he's... When Trayvon Martin gets shot, there he is. Um, there's there's um, black blood spilled by uh, the hands of a white, no matter what the cause or reason. There he is, and he's claiming that that old evil and and um, uh, and using poetic truth um, 
in the exact same way that it was used against black for three or four centuries. Um, last point, there is a, there's been a great deal of interest in the movie American uh, Sniper. Um, and it's, I think, way up over $200 million, this one movie, one film is made. So there is obviously, in American life, a, a hunger for a vision of America that is without irony, that is honorable, that is self-sacrificing, uh, that, that gives rather than just takes, uh, that does the right thing, stands for the right principle, uh, even though one, uh, one has to pay a price for that. Uh, well, the, as well as the movie is done, it hasn't been reviewed very much at all in the mainstream press, if at all, in most places. Um, even though people go out in the, in the thousands and millions, I guess, at this point to, to, uh, to see it. Um, well, the reason I think it has not gotten its sort of due as a film um, is because it is still based on that old poetic truth that America is a fundamentally innocent, straight-ahead country with no, uh, no irony in, uh, in any of its principles, that we should all be like the American sniper. He's the great, he's the American hero. Um, when, of course, in fact, it's the um, American life has never been that simple, never been that... Um, uh, it, it's always been more complicated than that. Uh, and so the movie is extremely popular, and yet it doesn't quite get, it doesn't quite have the impact on the culture that you would expect. Republicans won the, uh, the 2014 uh, election uh, significantly, um, you know, uh, which again makes the point that there are, Many Americans who are really tired of this whole poetic truth game, this whole uh, use of charges and, and moral manipulation that has been uh, a part of American life. Uh, and yet, even though the Republicans won, uh, won and uh, took over the House and so forth, uh, President Obama pretty much ignores them and goes right on ahead with his own agenda as though he were elected again. Um, implication being, America needs me. I don't need America. America needs me to redeem it, to take away its, its shame of... Uh, uh, of poetic truth, of, of the, uh, the illusion of its innocence. Uh, and in a sense, I think that's, those are the outlines of the culture war uh, that, 
that we all, uh, we all live with today. Uh, and I don't think, I think what's the answer to all of this? What is the, how do you, how do we resolve this? Well, certainly there's no simple answer, but I think if, to the degree that there is, it is simply the point that um, we as Americans have to finally become ourselves to accept ourselves, to accept that we do have a capacity to play this, this, sort, of, this sort of game of, of poetic truth and, and, and manipulation. That we, we did it, that we, yes, it was, it's a part of our history. It is a part of the human condition. And it's our awareness of it, our burgeoning awareness of it, certainly not complete yet, that does make us distinguish us. That does make us um, exceptional in, in, in many, many ways. Uh, and that, that uh, you, you can answer Obama. You can say for, to him, for example, you're manipulating. You're, you're, you're charging us with, a, with uh, something, a crime we didn't commit. Uh, and you're doing it in the same way we did it to you, and we, we know one when we see one. And don't think you're better than we are. Don't think you're better. Uh, and uh, there is a great deal of liberation in that, it seems to me, uh, that we need as Americans. Well, I'll stop there. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.